sales people, I really like data. And for me, it's something that enables me to make informed decisions and evidence-based decisions. And equally, when I'm looking at making business cases and trying to explain the situation that I'm having to deal with to other people, utilizing that data is a critical tool in giving any kind of idea validity. Welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast, a place to explore the emerging technologies and the practitioners that are building greener, healthier, and smarter communities. I'm your host, Nadine Khalo. In this season of the Internet of Nature podcast, we explore the future of urban forestry, together with Planet Geo, a pioneering urban forest software and consulting company. I partnered with Planet Geo because they're at the forefront of trees and technology helping communities around the world map a greener future. Together, we've chosen nine key topics facing the future of urban forestry. In today's episode, episode nine, we're diving into one of my personal favorites, data-driven, or as some people like to call it, data-informed decision-making that is revolutionizing urban forestry. For a long time, urban forestry has lacked the data it needed to build its business case, show its worth, and persuade stakeholders, of which there are many. But in the last 10 years, cutting-edge technologies have substantially impacted urban forest development and maintenance, from facilitating important opportunities for improved forestry health to enhancing methods of community interaction. It's an exciting trend that is expected to continue into the foreseeable future, and it's one Andy Lederer has harnessed in Oxfordshire County in the UK, which for those of you that aren't familiar is the county that is also home to the city of Oxford, which may be more familiar to some of you that are not from the UK. Andy is the principal arboricultural officer there, having worked his way up in the arboricultural profession for over 18 years. And even though Oxfordshire County has been collecting tree data for nearly 20 years, when Andy joined the team, he felt like he could do much more, that they could really do much more. So with new software in hand, Andy has gotten to work tirelessly collecting, managing, and most importantly, learning from the data to improve its urban forest. Together, Andy and I discuss his origin story, how he got involved with trees, despite growing up in North London, the technologies he's implemented within Oxfordshire County, the surprising t- the way his team of tree officers has reacted to this new data-driven approach, and ultimately what he hopes the future of data-driven urban forestry might look like. It was an interesting conversation, definitely insightful. I learned a lot. I hope you will too. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Andy. Hey Andy, welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast. Thanks for having me, it's a pleasure to be here. Good to have you on. So before we dive into today's topic, which is all about data-driven urban forestry, would you mind just introducing the listeners into who you are, who is Andy, and how did he get involved with trees? Goodness, where to start? Probably the beginning. Um, so yeah, my name is Andy Ledra. I'm currently the principal officer um, for arboriculture at Oxfordshire County Council in the UK. Um, I started in arboriculture back in 2006. Um, I worked at a, a, a small 
land-based industry college and was looking for around just trying to find work um, and I started running short courses chainsaws climbing tickets things like that and I got very friendly with the guy that teaches arboriculture and he convinced me to get up a tree I went up the tree came back down signed up for a course pretty much then and there and I haven't really looked back since so I spent about three years as a climbing arborist um, then went into local authority tree work as an assistant tree officer, um, then a tree officer, then became a principal officer in central London and was principal officer in Islington for about four or five years. Uh, I left there and worked as a development director uh, for the Institute of Chartered Foresters. There are professional body um, for uh, forestry and arboriculture in the UK. Um, and was with them for about two years and then really missed having that custodianship and the sort of day-to-day -day oversight of uh, mm. of trees in a tree stock um, and uh, opportunity came up at Oxford County Council and that's where I've been for just over four years. Wow and what what was it about that first time climbing a tree that struck you? Um, freedom mm. and the, just the, the the difference that you get um, from being up a tree, it's a totally different way of looking at the world. Being up in the top of a canopy can be compared to being down on the ground. It's not like climbing a ladder or anything like that. You're literally floating with nothing but ropes and sort of a harness and bits and pieces strapped to you, but you've just got total freedom. Um, and I suppose from there, it really made me realize how big and important trees are. And as a result, that's why I kind of wanted to do it. There was the fun stuff about playing around with chainsaws and all that kind of thing as well, don't get me wrong. Um, it was really hard work, which I really enjoyed. But at the same time, um, yeah, just actually suddenly being up close, and it sounds cheesy, but really personal with a tree, mm -hmm. climbing it, you're not going to get any other experience than being actually in its canopy to work out how it works and see what it does. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing like it. I had my first experience climbing a tree about a year ago, in, oh, a, wow. in a in a professional capacity let's say of course yeah. there was many 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 trees climbed prior to that <laughs> not as Obviously, not as much yeah. though this was uh this was uh 40 meters up yeah i think it was 130 feet 40 meters up in a douglas fir in eugene oh, oregon wow. uh with an arborist there uh scott altenhoff his name is and it was uh I mean, I was already working in the field. And so he, you know, S Scott is a, is, is something else in the sense of how his perspective on, on arboriculture and, arbor and on urban forestry. And he's like, this is what I do with everyone who I need to convince of the value of trees. It's like yeah, the best way to talk absolutely. about trees is, is up in a tree. Um, and he's taken, he's taken mayors up there and politicians and CEOs and business people, right? Like people in suits that you wouldn't really imagine yeah. going up there. And it's, yeah, every time it's funny, he said the exact same thing when I asked him, like, what was, what, when you, when you first climbed a tree, what was that like? He said the exact same word. It was freedom. It was just this, this feeling of, of yeah. freedom. There's nothing else like it. There's nothing else like it. I, yeah. you know, I, I suppose the only comparison for me would be something like scuba diving. Um, yeah or something like that but totally worlds apart worlds apart literally yeah, yeah under yeah. the sea on yeah. top of the tree um, oh beautiful yeah yeah but that's so what you, drew me there you you mentioned a little bit already the the importance and the role that trees can have 
why why do you believe urban forestry to be important? Why why should people that live in cities all their lives care about trees? Cities are probably uh, cities. Trees in cities are probably the most critical trees that we have in terms of delivering direct benefits to people. Um, I think growing, I was born and bred in London, North London. Um, people take trees for granted. And it's only actually when I started working, I, I got into the industry late. I was about 24, 25. Um, and it's only when I started working in the industry that people actually gave me an understanding of the need to have people that went out and looked at trees. That was their job. They were clone trees and prune trees. And if we don't have those custodians doing those really important work, those trees will just fail. And notwithstanding that, there's loads of people in, 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 in cities that don't necessarily want trees either, don't see the benefits. And I think as a, an industry, urban forestry, the greater impact that trees have to people, the benefits they bring, um, not only health, but ecosystem services and everything else associated with that, um, we need to be able to shout and scream about it more uh, and try and get people to buy into that and understand why we do this. And with climate change being what it is, let's be honest, the hottest places that are going to be are going to be the cities. They're already the hottest place anyway. Um, certainly in the UK, it, it's London is a hot spot. Mm. Um, and not having those tree-lined streets, it's a totally different place to walk. Um, and it does make a massive difference. Not least, it gives you a little place to, if you've got trees in parks, you've got children that can go out and experience natural play, understand about um, taking risk. And, you know, if they fall, that's fine. If they're going, go climbing a tree, playing with their friends, whatever, it's about having that opportunity to interact with nature. And trees are probably an instant thing that they can just walk up to and touch without fear, without worry or anything else. Um, and they have such a big impact. If you imagine, like uh, once I saw a photo of um, Parliament Square when we were talking about uh, plane wilt, and Parliament Square is surrounded by plane trees, and the impact of plane wilt, someone had photoshopped the picture of Parliament Square without any plane trees. And it's a totally different place. And until you lose those assets, and trees are assets, then you can't just pick it up and plunk another one back in it takes mm -hmm. years to get to the kind of stature and landscape impact that trees have um so there's a visual factor there's a health factor there's a ecosystem service factor that there are so many parts of a um of the natural world that trees contribute to within an urban setting um and yes there's conflict between infrastructure and trees I think everyone accepts that, but that shouldn't be a reason not to plant trees. And equally, well cared for trees and trees in the right place. And, you know, all those kind of lessons that have been learned over the last 15, 20 years, those should be implemented properly now. We shouldn't be fearful of planting trees or, or even making sure that we've got the right funding to maintain the trees that we've got. And that's really critical as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's one of the best tools that I think we have at our disposal when it comes to convincing people of the value of trees is photoshopping an image where you currently have trees, remove them from yeah. the image or don't have trees and add them to the image. It's like one of the best, you know, a picture says a thousand words and oftentimes 
you we really don't realize how important they are until they're gone until they've been removed yeah. or until a pest or a disease has struck and that that's it it's the it's the you you walk on the on the same street and you're like something is seriously wrong here what is it what is it oh yeah that's what's missing hmm. yeah and i think if you if it's funny in london people do take trees for granted i think at times uh in more rural localities um you people feel like they've got too many trees so cutting down the trees that'd be too mm. there's always one around the corner and there's always one springing up somewhere else but i think actually um certainly in oxfordshire we're trying to focus on a mixture of planting where we're trying to re where we're trying to bring street trees to existing uh, established residential streets because oxfordshire is really quite a, a, a growing county um there's a lot of infrastructure work in terms of uh, looking at sustainable active travel. So that means that you create the corridors for those people to move along that um, equally where we're looking at integrating bus lanes and things like that for electric buses and stuff like that. We need to widen existing quite wide roads anyway. And the only way you can go is wider into the verge and, and, and um, potentially have to remove existing trees. And equally, yeah. if you're looking at putting trees directly back in those locations, that's where it's a real struggle because you're always going to keep potentially widening, widening the sort of arterial routes in and out of places and around a, an area. So actually where you've got existing established residential streets, those are the places that aren't going to change. Mm-hmm. The people will change, granted, um, uh, and the houses might change, driveways might pop up, they might disappear, front gardens might do the same, but the streetscape, in theory, the sort of baseline should stay the same. And right. so that's why we're focused on trying to integrate trees into those places, because that's where we feel we can make the long term different and maximise the trees that we plant to create the sort of canopy cover that we're really looking to achieve. So, so speaking of all that, of canopy cover, maximizing your impact, mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about the role that technology specifically has played into your work. What kind of technologies, what kind of role have they played? Um, so I, I'm, I'm one of those sad people, I really like data. And for me, it's something that um, enables me to make informed decisions and evidence-based decisions. And equally, when I'm looking at making business cases and trying to explain the situation that I'm having to deal with to other people, utilizing that data is a critical tool in giving any kind of idea validity. So um, we did a bit, we used to, we, we've had three data in Oxfordshire since for the last 18 years. It's been really poor. It's been vague. And because it, it, it's been so vague, the tree officers, when they've gone out and inspected things, they're updating the bare bones. Um, because realistically, it's not going to be able to tell anyone anything um, other than what species of tree it, it is. But there's no size. There's no there's no sort of there's no detail. Um, and we had a big review as a team about three and a half, four years ago, um, at the same time when we changed software provider. And that's right around the right time right. that you joined as well four years ago yeah yeah it is yeah so that was it was me i was gonna I say is there a link out. here yeah. <laughs> there is a, there, there is a total so ultimately i joined i looked at the software provider that we had and we did an internal analysis to work out mm-hmm. well 
can it deliver what we need it to deliver and have we just been using it badly for the last 15 20 years we felt that we need to actually explore the other the whole marketplace to find out what we could get and what we could do um and we went with a totally new software provider that was quite fresh to the uk but what we also did is we sat down as a team and said what what is going to be the data that's going to help us do things what information do we need to capture when we go out and inspecting the 400,000 trees that we look after that we can capture that can help us inform people when it comes to demonstrating value for money on our, or how much money we spend on maintenance compared to the asset value of the trees very um, important question because there's there's so many municipalities yeah. and organizations out there that are collecting data for the sake of collecting data and they've never actually asked themselves what is it that we need to be collecting and what are we going to use that data for? Yeah, I think that's the, the, the this, you can always find data. Mm. Um, and it, it, it equally, if you're looking to capture absolutely everything, it's a big drain on resource because it impacts efficiency. It equally can disenfranchise your staff with what you're looking to deliver because they're just going, well, I'm just going to take data for the sake of taking data. There's no buy in there. They don't understand it. They don't see the benefit of it. And then eventually you just see the quality slip off as well because they just get into a routine of ticking boxes and doing the same monotonous thing every time. So actually, while they might be inspecting the tree and, and, and choosing the right um, recommendations, if there are tree works or remedial works that might be needed, then the, you know, it, the, they do the right thing, but the way that they capture the, the core component data of the tree is maybe not up to the standard that, that as people are relying on that data, like myself, uh, and equally people higher up the food chain for me to be able to demonstrate that data or others to use that data, um, it really does have a massive impact. So we did sit down as a team, we agreed what we would use. And if we wanted something, if we wanted to record something as part of an inspection, we had to explain why. And then mm -hmm. we all had to agree that that was a justified reason to do it. So we had lots of things that had historically been um, captured, uh, like in, in, in the UK we use age class, is a very common thing. And age class is basically a forestry term. So it puts the tree into a, a subjective grouping to say, right, well, it's a young tree, it's a semi-mature tree, immature, over-mature, and so on and so forth. But it's all subjective. There's no way of categorizing it truly accurately and notwithstanding that, it's also based on terminology that's related to forestry as part of a productive timber cycle. That's not what we're doing in urban forestry. That's not how we're managing urban trees. We're not looking for them to, to reach maturity and then cut them down and sell them for timber. We want to maximize their life expectancy. So they, they, they provide not only the sort of benefits while they're absolutely at their sort of fullest vitality, producing as many benefits as possible, but as they start to decline as well, the biodiversity, habitat benefits, and everything else that they provide, that that should be recognised as well. Um, so we all agreed that we weren't going to use that anymore. So we don't. We don't record that subjective thing. And every single aspect of our data, where possible, we try and make it objective. So it's about measuring. Mm -hmm. It's about quantifying things. So then we can convert those numbers to for other uses so we take cardinal point data of the of the canopy uh, in meters and then this it, well, this is all done from a tablet we just use 
mobile hotspots, um, well, cellular technology just to automatically update everything. Nothing's downloaded. It's all live feed. Um, we're generally pretty lucky. There's only a couple of bad places in Oxfordshire, but we can go out, capture all this information. Notwithstanding that, we also take other data that relates to the life expectancy of the trees, which is also related to uh, like a, an asset calculation system we use in the, in the UK called CABAT, um, which produces an amenity value for the tree. So it's not about ecosystem services, it's about replacement value for that individual tree based on a core, um, what we call the unit value factor, which is a, 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 um, a, a equivalent to a cubic centimeter of tree um, that you'd buy from a nursery and then extrapolate it up based on the tree that's in front of you and then depreciate it if it has defects or if there are problems with it or if it hasn't reached its full potential or whatever else. And then through those that's that kind asset of, value. That's kind of interesting yeah. to have, because we talk a lot in the urban forestry world and nature-based solutions world about, well, these assets can only appreciate in value over time. Mm. But this is actually the first that I've heard where you actually have a, a depreciation value associated with it as well, if there are defects. So, yeah, so that, that's the idea behind it is because it's based on immunity value and life mm. expectancy being one of those. It's the last... Uh, um, but I, I can send you links. There's lots of stuff on the London Tree Officers Association website and it's mm. free to download. It's a concept that's obviously UK based, mm. um, but it might be something that m could be utilised in other areas. Yeah, We're quite no. lucky because in our planning system, amenity values or the value of amenity is recognised. So it's something that we can lynch onto or hook onto. And that's um, the London Tree Officers, just for the listeners, their website. London Tree Officers Association, it is www.ltoa.org, I believe. Okay. Um, if you just Google LTOA, I think there are very other, very few other things that come up. That'll get the you London there. Tree Officers Association, yeah. It's free to download. Um, we've just relaunched it, actually, in, I'm on the CABAC group as well. So there's bias, but the reason why I'm on that group is because I utilise it for um uh not only valuing uh immunity valuation of trees but also to help me uh make informed decisions about whether we retain or potentially will it to remove trees as well because it helps me as a tree manager by saying well do we need to keep a tree that has got about three or four years to live sure when actually is that really going to be a benefit that it's a really low value tree we could be better off putting in something else in terms of highway infrastructure and then ensuring that as part of that project we look to plant three or four new trees within that space sure so actually it, it's, it's it's a good tool to be able to have those conversations with highway managers and other people that really focus on the on on, on the monetary value of assets does that make sense yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's that's probably one of the, and I'm curious to get your opinion on this. Have you seen data? How do I word this? One of the ways that I've seen data be used most effectively within urban forestry is for communicating the monetary value of trees. Mm -hmm. Is that something yeah. that you've seen as well? Uh, yeah, so there's there's loads in the UK. We, there's, there's lots and lots of local authorities that have really sort of Grass hold of iTree in terms of ecosystem service benefits. 
yeah um, and the, I treat eco and utilizing those tools in order to actually try to explain to people the value of the trees and Kava is a different it's a different way of valuing trees because it's focusing on the amenity value and not ecosystem services because they mm -hmm. are two separate things. Um, but from my point of view, all of the valuation tools out there, they all have a purpose and that providing that the, the key components are clearly explained and the different, the differences are clearly explained and they're used in the right manner. So they're just knowing which tool, depending on who you're having the conversation with. Yeah. Um, so certainly the eco benefits um, like uh, calculations like with iTree Eco and, 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 and potentially others as well, have it, telling people what the tree is doing for them in providing ecosystem services is something that they would probably be able to grasp and understand better than necessarily trying to calculate amenity value. But mm -hmm. if I'm talking about assets to people that talk about street lab columns, paving slabs, things that you know actually when you buy it has a specific value and it have, has a life cycle and it has a life expectancy that's clearly defined as soon as you purchase it sure. um, and you know what that cycle of replacement is and everything else that goes along with it having an amenity valuation um, model enables me to then have utilized trees within the same realm of that conversation of assets does that make sense no, it does. And and one of the, I think, though, the key limitations of something like iTree and, and putting a monetary value on, on trees using these different valuation models yeah. is, of course, they're very reliant on the quality of the input data going into these models. Absolutely. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's like any model, like, you know, your output's going to be crappy if your input is crappy. And how do you, how do you make sure, um, I guess I'm curious, have you guys used any technologies to increase the quality of that input data? Um, in all honesty, no. Um, we base the inputs where possible on measurements and things like that. And, and those are manual tree surveys. So manual people... tree surveys, but but people are taking the measurements. Um, certainly, like lidar data and things like that is something that I'd absolutely love to explore because I think what I really want to be able to do is get a full baseline for Oxfordshire. Yeah. Through the labour-intensive way, granted, but in my mind, it's the it's the it's the most efficient way of me being able to clearly understand the tree stock and get things done yeah. proactively over a sort of, we've got a four year plan right. um, that we're working towards. Uh, so once we've got that baseline, we know where we're starting from. And so in theory, there's a combination of LIDAR, uh, canopy cover assessment, satellite imagery, and all the other different things in there to really get other technologies in, out there that can aid with that regular updating to see mm -hmm. where things have gone. And I think one of the hardest things with trees, which is something that always fascinates me, is trying to understand how it changes because it takes so long to change. And you don't see the changes because they are so minute. So unless you've got good data to start with that you can see, mm. again, going back to the data side of things, you can, you, you can quantify those changes. And hopefully, if you're getting the right data and it's being recorded accurately, at least in the first instance, and then we can look at technology to start to 
capture that detail for us as an update, we can start looking at growth patterns, we can start looking at um, where we've got areas of, um, or, or trees that do absolutely brilliantly within certain environments. And also um, we capture information on what surface of the tree is growing in and other things like that, whether it's touching other trees canopies. Um, we take, we all agreed all the data that were captured, mainly because if something comes along, we do have a problem with pest diseases or anything else, then we have a great understanding of what's out there already and we can start to look at patterns that might influence the condition of trees um, whether it might be all those in grass are actually in a worse condition than those that are surrounded by tarmac unlikely but you never mm. know without actually starting to have data and analyze it you don't necessarily have the opportunity to put up correlations or anything like that yeah i mean one of the not one of the very first guests i ever had on the podcast was Dirk van riel of tree tracker the company in the netherlands that does a terrestrial lidar based um tree inventory scanning so with a lidar scanner on top of the car or on top of a backpack if it's an area where you can't get a car in and they'll do an entire create a 3d point cloud basically a digital twin of your street mm -hmm. tree inventory stock and of course if you you know you, if you put the scanner on a backpack you could get parks and backyards and things like that but it's mm -hmm. really meant for street tree inventories and when we when i had him on the show at this point over two years ago um they that was that was really something that was up and coming and it still is in many ways but one of the most exciting ways that i've seen that technology be used is actually changing how cities value the success of their urban forest or measure the success of their urban forest, yeah. which of course in, in many municipalities is still very much based on the number of stems that have gone into the ground every oh. single year, which of course, yeah. I don't, I guess you're shaking your head. Like there's <laughs> so many things wrong with that. Cause of course it says so little about the productivity of the forest and, and, and how it's, and how it's, how it's been growing and ecosystem services and all these things. Mm. And with this terrestrial LIDAR data, because they're able to scan the entire street tree inventory, um, you know, right. if that's twice a year, whether that's every two years, and be able yeah. to get really objective measurements of, for example, things like crown volume, which says a lot more yeah. about the ecosystem services, about how much uh, how much air the tree is able to filter, pollutants, water, heat reduction, all these different things. That now there are uh, there's a small city in the Netherlands about 30 kilometers outside of Amsterdam called Woerden that has actually changed how they measure the success of their urban forest, not in terms of stems that they put into the ground, but actually the amount of crown volume growth that they have mm. every single year. Which I just think is such a small change, but it's so innovative because it completely incentivizes something that's actually really useful really and beneficial. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think it it is. You can only go on numbers. Um, we've done some tree planting this year. Um, uh, the the numbers of trees that we planted, in my mind, is it, it, I'm not that bothered about because mm. what I want to do is make sure that when we're planting trees, they're successful. Right. That's the biggest challenge with anything. And then, as you say, taking on that data. So we've got I, uh, the the software company we use. I, I, I pester a lot and I ask for a lot. And they generally say, oh, we haven't really thought about that. We'll see what we can do. And they generally uh, make good. And I think um, I'm really lucky that we've got a software company that have enabled that to happen. Um, because we keep having these asked and they keep coming back and saying, oh yeah, okay, that's fine, we can do that. And because we're taking canopy radii, um, 
And who is uh, who is who point. is the software company? Uh, Planet Geo. <laughs> yeah. No, also so, the well, tree also, plotter. Yeah, yeah. Tree plotter. Right. So we we've been using them for three years now, um, and so we take this canopy, these canopy, the, the the canopy information. I said, look, can we get canopy area? And now we're starting to take data that is um, sort of to the base of canopy, so canopy above ground level. So where does the canopy start in differentiation to the ground? So while we're going out and we're taking that information, it's something that we've already got those fields, we're taking that data. If we've got how where the canopy starts to where the height of the tree is, and we use electric chronometers to measure the, the heights of trees, electric chronometers are just amazing. Wow, so good. Um, and then uh because taking the cardinal points we've got the area we've got then an actual figure for what that size of canopy mm. could be so there's no reason why we couldn't do canopy volume and that's certainly what i want to be able to look towards yeah so again we get a baseline data of canopy volume and then if if i can find some funding from somewhere then maybe we can go down the lidar route as well because all that stuff fascinates me but yeah hearing about that the idea that you can really people are starting to quantify that and utilize that as a benchmark of success. That's brilliant. Hey, everybody. Thanks again to this season's sponsor, Planet Geo. Planet Geo has a suite of software and services all designed to shift the urban forestry conversation from hypothetical to reality. See the link in the show notes to learn more. And now back to the show. And I, and I think so much of, you know, data-driven urban forestry and so is so novel and so new in so many ways. And, and municipalities are just kind of coming to terms with what kind of technologies and what kind of software tools are necessary that it, it sounds like you and Planet Geo have established the relationship where you can really help each other out as well. You're providing Absolutely. the on-the-ground feedback to make that software better so that they can better help you in the field. So descri- describe yeah. a little bit, like, what what are some of the things that you've come up against that have that have been changes or points of feedback? Like, what is what have, what are issues that you run up against in the field? Um, so, cool. I suppose, like, like with any software, there's always glitches and things like that. Um, they generally fix pretty quickly. But one of the things that we had to do is we had to do driven surveys. So we, we have to do, we do driven surveys annually on the major um, A and B roads around Oxfordshire as part of our sort of duty of care to make sure that as well as having records of the trees, it's a negative lead survey. So I spend, my officers spend about six days driving around Oxfordshire in pairs looking at just driving the roads they go one way and then go the other way and, and and that kind of thing so let's then record that we used to record that on a spreadsheet so mm-hmm. we would write the date that we drove the roads and then if someone didn't have the date the spreadsheet or didn't have the right version of the spreadsheet then things always got complicated and it got Nightmare. convoluted and everything else so i spoke to um uh planet geo and said look this is the issue surely we've got so much data on 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 tree plotter why can't we make this work on tree plotter mm. and they kind of undenied a bit and then because of the layers that we're given them um 
they were able to, to basically create what I call the worm network because it just creates a load of white lines all over Oxfordshire, which are all the roads. And then as soon as we drive down it, we click on it and go, we inspect it on this date while we're out in the field, while we've driven down the road and the line turns green. Brilliant. So suddenly we've gone from having to update spreadsheets, people then don't do things in the right place to come a really uniform way of inputting information. And then equally, that makes it really accessible to our insurance team that needs to defend claims, that kind of stuff. So it really, really helps. Where do you see all of this going? We met, we talked a little bit about kind of um, changing how we measure the success of the urban forest, you know, even more new and upcoming technologies like LIDAR, both aerial and terrestrial LIDAR, different ways of using data. I mean, I, the whole role of big data and AI and algorithms and prediction algorithms and things like that, I foresee playing a big role in the future. What, what personally have you seen? What are you most excited about, let's say, in the next five to 10 years of data-driven urban forestry? I think the next five to 10 years, data-wise, would be robust strategic decision making based on ultimately publicly shared data mm. and in the uk we have a huge amount of publicly owned trees um and i don't think that as a country whether it be england scotland wales northern ireland wherever we are very good at sharing that information and actually getting others to utilize it and tap into it and I think where you've got technology, um, and, and sorry, already and, and like lies. Yeah. What do you What do you mean by others? Who Who should be using that data that isn't? I think members of the public. Hmm. Um, I think equally economists potentially. Um, where you're looking at carbon credits and things like that, that is huge at the moment. Well, you we've got to be really careful as public custodians or custodians of sort of public assets that we just don't turn around and take everyone's money um, and sell off all our own carbon credits and then we have to then cut down things because we get a disease in and then what happens to all that sort of finance so I think economists are going to be play a, a part have a part to play in the future um, what happens with what do I want I really don't know in I would love to see all local authorities capture the same standard in detail of information so that everyone can have comparable understanding of what they own, how they manage, and actually we can have a much better oversight of the UK as a whole in terms of the public urban estate. Um, and equally, we can then, because we're exchanging data and it's in more, maybe even one central location, dare I say it, and that it's all getting updated uniformly, regularly, and with the same amount of detail, then everything becomes comparable. And rather than London doing things one way and Manchester doing things a different way, and Oxford in, in between the two is doing it differently altogether, um, it, it brings everyone together so that everyone's at the same level playing field. Um, yeah. And therefore, more investment can be made in supporting the right decisions rather than whoever's got the money can make the decisions. And sure. I suppose that's, that's kind of where I like to be. Does that make sense? No, it does. And, and speaking of, of money, imagine you came into a big chunk of change tomorrow and you had full mm -hmm. authority to do with that big pot of money what you wanted. What would be the, the, what would be the one thing within data-driven urban forestry that you would want to attack? 
I'd want everyone to have access to the same software and and uh, all that is exchanged as I, as I just said I think so planet geo the, licenses the, for everyone <laughs> or, or, or other software providers as long as there's one for all and it does the job we need it to I'm fine with it yeah, um, yeah I, I suppose that that's the thing in 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 the UK it's a real it's a real challenge there's a lot of disparity there's some local authorities that still struggle to have one tree officer um, and others that are blessed with nine or ten um, some are working from spreadsheets and some have tree databases um, some have in a, a tree database that they can only afford to have one user on others mm -hmm. have a tree database that allows unlimited users so everyone can utilize it and I think it's just this dis the disparate the disparate resources that everyone has yeah this enables comparable sharing and equally the quality of information and data that can be captured because people just don't have the time or the resources to even look to do more because they're struggling to do what they need to do anyway yeah um, so if i was given all the money then that that's what i would hope to do so we can create a really clear picture and understanding of what's going on everywhere in the uk and not just those that can afford it yeah yeah no i i i, I agree i think that's one of the beautiful opportunities that comes with this influx of technologies that we have the tools to be able to cost effectively do this at scale in a way that we've never been able to do before but yeah we are also operating in a market with a lot of different commercial parties and a lot of different interests and a lot of different stakeholders. And if we don't figure out some kind of golden standard when it comes to both collecting and the maintenance of tree data, it's going to get really messy really soon. And it does lead to these disparate um, data sets and also these situations where you could have bordering municipalities. One of them has, you know, the, the, the most beautiful operational tree inventory you've ever seen. And the other one hasn't collected tree data in 15 years. So that's, I, 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 that's something that I've seen in my work and it's, it's frustrating, but it's precisely, I hope that in the next five to 10 years, that's something that technology can help us fix. It's such a simple and in my mind, accessible tool to every most most people now have access to a mobile phone. Mm -hmm. it, it just seems daft that we can't get people, professionals out there that need to do a job to it, enable them to do their jobs. We can't find a simple solution for all. Um, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, okay. I'm going to get off the soapbox now. <laughs> one one last question about that I have is what have I mean you you manage a number of tree officers what what has been their response to using more tech when out in the field? Ooh, here we go. Uh, very. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, it, it's like within it's it's lovely having a group of. Uh, a, a, a team that I've got that have a um, every single one of them is really different and I think there's a huge amount of benefit in that because equally we work in a way where we're quite open and honest with each other about if people come up with ideas they're never sh they're never shot down they're openly discussed and I mean openly um, but 
when it comes to technology, the people that I thought were more adverse to using technology have actually embraced it. Um, one of my team started with us just over two years ago, um, had a mobile phone and used it for making phone calls, um, never used social media. Um, he's not that much younger than me and, and he, he just doesn't, doesn't do email, didn't do word processing, anything like that. He was a climbing arborist and had been for years and he was worried and he's absolutely embraced all the technology that I've thrown at him. And not only that, he's coming up with ideas of how we can do more with the tech that we've got and can we go out and find more. So it's, it's solely dependent on the individual. Some people will absolutely surprise you and, and they've blown, like some of those people that I've worked with have totally blown my mind on what I thought would maybe be quite a rocky conversation and something that would have to sort of slowly build up a lot of training, a lot of support and a lot of, come on, you can do this. Uh, almost they're teaching me which is brilliant and that's that, really positive it is i think it's, as long as you give people the, the 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 time the space and you can create that i don't know context and story and how that's going to benefit them how that's going to be able to make their jobs easier um then you, you will be laughing really it, that, that that's what it should be about it should be enabling people to go out and do more um that's what technology should do as, as much as capture data and everything else it should make you more efficient make you more effective um, absolutely absolutely i think i think that's something uh, critique that um i've gotten around you know the concept of internet of nature just even more broadly using using tech in this field is people really quickly jump to this um, this false narrative that they they think that I'm pr proponing some idea where technology is going to replace nature or, or technology is going to replace arborists in some way. And mm. it's like, that's absolutely not it. And it's um, Josh Bahanik, who from Davy Tree, who was on the podcast earlier, he has this amazing yeah. quote, and he basically says, arborists, um, Arborists who, oh God, I'm going to butcher it. I always do this. I always set up this quote and then I butcher it. Arborists who embrace technology. Okay, I remember. Technology will not replace arborists, but arborists who who embrace technology will likely replace those who don't. But yeah. I think at the core of that is this technology is an enabler. It should always be an enabler. It's never a replacement. Yeah. It's a tool that you have yeah. in your bigger tool set to be able to do your job more efficiently, more optimally, and also hopefully just have more fun doing it. Absolutely. It gets you, I mean, my team work um, in such an agile way now, probably for three, at least three, if not four days of the week, mm -hmm. they are out looking at trees. They don't need to go to the office because the technology that we've got enables them to go out and do pretty much everything they need to do other than raise a purchase order for the work. But they can go out and inspect the trees. They can deal with inquiries on site. They can um respond to those inquiries and update customers and what's happened or what's not going to happen or whatever the outcome might be they update the tree records they update um they create works orders all from while they're stood in front of the tree they turn up and there's an emergency they phone the contractor and say i've sent you a works order it's ready to go and the contractor mm -hmm. just logs in and off they go and do it yeah. it makes it so much more efficient and it means that 
what I keep telling my team is that technology is there and I have a terrible memory. So technology is an absolute godsend um, because I don't have to remember because it tells me when I need to remember and what I need to remember. Providing I remember to write it in there <laughs> I was or write it say. down somewhere, then it's fine. But it's the same for my team. They do so many different things and they work so hard to do their jobs to do above and beyond what I could ever ask of them but that technology is the key to stop them having to keep remembering things because it's there it makes it should make it easier for them to do their job yeah um and be more effective and be more efficient while they do it yeah absolutely and um one of the last two questions that I'll ask you is um, people may have heard this and be keen to get in touch with you and also just to learn about how you've done it within your own council. What's the, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Uh, probably LinkedIn. I'm normally on LinkedIn a lot. Uh, I don't do a huge number of posts, but I, I will happily respond to DMs. Um, I certainly share. I'm a big advocate of sharing job posts um mainly because we're always struggling to recruit everyone else is struggling to recruit from your recent podcast as well it seems to be the world over and mm-hmm. that's the uk so how we come how we square that circle um i have no idea um but yeah that's the, probably the best way so um i'm just andy lederer on linkedin that's l-e-d-e-r-e-r someone came up with this they, they said well didn't come up with it it's quite obvious when they said it um it's like Federer but with an L and yeah that's exactly and there we go there we go Federer with an L yeah and um on that previous note that you just mentioned that is another question that just came up for me is how do you see the role of technology and data-driven urban forestry as a role potentially playing a role in engaging that younger generation of urban foresters and arborists that as you mentioned are very difficult to reach and everyone's having a struggle recruiting them. Could technology play a role in making this job more meaningful, more appealing, more attractive? Yeah, I think we've got to find a way of making it sexy. I don't Mm. know how we do that, but everyone that I meet in the industry uh, and the profession is absolutely passionate about what they do. They, when you meet tree people, they talk about trees. Now, there's very other, there's very few other professions that, in my mind, do that. But we're very, not very good at sharing that. We're not very good at selling that. Um, certainly, technology and using technology and demonstrating how trees can, the amount of technology of tech that is related to trees, whether it be urban forestry, whether it be forestry and the huge machines that they do, and the data capture that they do while they're cutting down a tree for, for productive timber and things like that. That's amazing. But we need to get away, find a way of getting it to cities. And this is the biggest challenge that I think I've found is that rural localities understand the rural um, vocations. So whether you're an arborist or a forest or whatever, they understand it and there's a place for it. There's been people that they've known throughout their lifetime that have had some kind of role with trees or forests or something like that. In the city, people don't. And I think that's where the connection is lost, but that's where mm. technology can really actually be ramped up to make sure you're getting that message across. Um, and why, I'm totally biased, but why trees and forest or like forestry and arboriculture is not part of what we call stem in the uk um 
science, technology, English and maths as the sort of core components. I mean, to, to share the data that we've got, share the technology that we use and bring it into primary schools and secondary schools um, and, and, and get people to understand that actually maths, trigonometry has a purpose because you can measure the height of a tree with it. But if you just tell people this is trigonometry and this is how we use it, it goes one in one ear and out the other. So actually, let's give it life. Let's engage with people like that. But it's got to start younger. And I think that's where we can really give the opportunity. We should be doing lectures like uh, like secondary school, turning up and giving presentations to people about about technology we use. Yeah, show off the chainsaws and stuff like that. Because people like that, they understand that, that electric chainsaws even more so because Mm -hmm. they're silent until they're not but there's other technology that's around that we should be able to showcase and take to the younger generation by the time they reach 18 certainly in this country they're going to be harder to reach already so in yeah. my mind it's that sort of 11 to 14 11 to 16 where they're having to make decisions that you can really try and tie them down um or yeah almost open their eyes rather if that makes yeah. more sense yeah, that earlier introduction, and especially in in urban environments, where, as you said, if you're not growing up in a rural setting, you might have that less of a connection with trees, or you've you've, you've perhaps you haven't even seen tree work ever really being played out. So it's just not something that is that plays a role in your in your in your world. So I I, I agree. I think it's and I I love what you said about making trigonometry real for students and, and applying it to the real life. It's so it's 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 so important to have those connections with the real world, especially when you're a kid and you're learning about trigonometry. You're like, how the hell am I ever going to use this? Why does this matter? Yeah, <laughs> now you know it can help you calculate the size exactly. of a tree. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But even oh, if cool. even if you get one kid in like four years that goes, oh, yeah, that does make sense now. Either you've got a win because or she or they've got a win because they've worked out that, that this maths is useful and it mm -hmm. might turn them into a math student. I don't I don't care as long as it gives them the opportunity to open their eyes to yeah. how you can use things. That's the most important thing. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, okay, Andy, I'll leave you with the last question that I ask all of the guests who come on the show. And that is, what does the Internet of Nature mean to you? I've stumped really, him. I really struggle with this. I've stumped I, him, I, ladies I, and gentlemen. I, I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've thought long and hard about trying to come up with something that sounds really amazing. That's and way too much pressure on yourself. <laughs> I know, I know it is, but I like things to be perfect and uh, I can't think of anything perfect and the only thing that I can the only thing that sort of came to mind is almost like the internet of nature is the way of connecting the way that trees and mycorrhiza and plants and everything it's almost like the soil that allows everything to grow in it but you still got to have a good soil in order for all the nature to grow out of it so um that's kind of the only thing that I could come up with and I know that well, sounds awful. That was Earth's internet was the inspiration behind Internet of Nature. So in that sense it sounds pretty perfect to me. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well thank you Andy for coming on. This has been great. No thanks for having me. It's been great chatting. Thank you for listening to the Internet of Nature podcast. Want to learn more about the Internet of Nature? Subscribe to my newsletter at nadinahalla.com. 
I'm looking forward to bringing you another great guest next week. As always, remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review if you learned something new. The best way to support us is to share this episode with a friend or colleague. Season five of the Internet of Nature podcast on the future of urban forestry is brought to you by Planet Geo. See you next week.